Welcome to The Well, a podcast about the spirited world of cocktails, the alcohol that's in them, and the bars that serve them. Of all the things we consume, the world of booze is perhaps the most riddled with misunderstandings, mysticism, and downright consumer confusion. Our aim is to make you a more mindful imbiber so you can live your best life. My name is Rodney Sino Cruz, a DJ and music engineer who is on the quest to drink more intelligently. And I'm Paymon Bamani, a lawyer turned bartender who will be the seeing eye dog as we navigate through the muddled world of alcohol. Welcome to episode four. It's perfect timing to talk about uh, champagne and bubbly because the weather is cooling off and, you know, now that it's autumn, I always consider this kind of champagne season personally, you know, all the way up to the New Year's. It's just kind of the air feels crisp and, um, you know, depending on where you are, maybe not so much in L.A. right now because of the fires, but definitely when I lived in New York City in autumn, you know, the air smelled like champagne. So I always associate champagne with autumn and to discuss that we have a really good guest today his name is dan pirelli and he has a company called firstthewine.com it's an online retail store for finding some really cool uh, bottles of wine that uh, you may not be able to find at your regular bevmo and he also has this temperature controlled wine storage facility in la which we'll actually be recording from and doing the interview in addition what makes Dan really cool for this episode is that he has a deep knowledge of champagne and sparkling wines, and he's the organizer of one of LA's premier sparkling wine and champagne festivals called Effervescence, which takes place every year around May in LA. So Dan, welcome to the show, and thanks for having us at your, uh, your place of business. Tell us a little bit about First the Wine. It's a uh, online-only wine store. Uh, we specialize in largely European wines, but a lot of champagne, which maybe is why you're here. Um, but we also have wines from South Africa, a little bit from the States, and everything from about $10 up to thousands. Well, you're at, we are here for champagne, and, and we know that you definitely are a source of knowledge on that. So let's jump right into it. Um, a lot of people, when they hear the word champagne or when they use the word, they're using it colloquially and very loosely to talk about anything with bubbles and alcohol, right? right? Which is fine, but it's nice to know what it really is. So let's just jump right into that. What is champagne? It is a sparkling wine that comes from a very specific area in France that actually has the place name champagne, is controlled by the state, and you're only allowed to put the name Champagne on your bottle if you're within that delimited area. And now with the EU, the EU has reached out around the world because 10, 15 years ago, there was a heck of a lot of Champagne on shelves in Australia and South America and North America, wherever, it was called Champagne, and it wasn't. And so as part of the world you know, sort of coming together through the internet and the jets and everything, the EU prevailed upon everybody to stop using the word champagne. And so now you'll hear sparkling wine, you'll hear Prosecco, you'll, all these other names that come in Europe from very specific places within, you know, one country in Europe or in the United States or Australia, sparkling wine. And why does that distinction matter? It matters for a lot of reasons. Historically and traditionally, uh, cultural appropriation of a tradition is something that we're all kind of sensitized to these days. And whether it's in the area of food or uh, religion or wine, and you know, the people that actually created something are, are more and more being recognized for being the arbiters, uh, the custodians of that tradition. That's something within the world of wine, in particular in Europe, of, uh, there's a, a tradition uh, that goes back over a thousand years. Uh, there was a lot of codification of what uh, of, of wine in Germany and in France in particular, starting in the 900s. It was Cistercian monks and, and people like this that you know said, wait a minute, there's a relationship here between a certain grape and a certain piece of land, and uh, it's, it's important to make that distinction. You're referring to terroir. Terroir, 
Yes. Uh, a word that I avoid as much as I can. And why is that? Because I think it's, it's like anything that becomes a rubric in life, it's misused. And, uh, and if you're going to use the word, you have to encompass the fact that terroir includes humanity. And it's a lot more than temperature and geology. And so when you see all of this you know, fascination about, like in Germany, red slate, gray slate, blue slate, you know, uh, friable, whatever, clay, loam, all of this, all these details are just that. And uh, the reason why I call my business first the wine, then the story is I'm a big believer in you need to be exposed to whatever it is and then become interested for good reason about something because you either love it or you hate it or you don't understand it. But to read about something and, and you know, and, and, and to think that you have anything, any knowledge about it uh, is, I, I think, a mistake when it comes to wine. Wine is something, it's like sex. Do it and then figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of, uh, you mentioned Prosecco. Let's jump into that. What, you know, there's a lot of kind of phrases we hear these days. Prosecco is something you see on menus. Um, we know it comes from Italy. We hear the word pet nat thrown out a lot. Right. What is the difference between champagne and some of these other uh, common, you know, sparklings? There, there are um, a lot of differences, and I'll try to, you know, only speak to what I think is, is, you know, the important differences. Champagne has a double fermentation that is controlled in one of two ways, uh, and pet gnats uh, also have a double fermentation, but uh, the second fermentation is a natural re-fermenting of a wine in the bottle as opposed to in champagne. The introduction of yeast and sugar, you know, in the process, in fact, sugar twice in the process of champagne. We could go through those details, but I think that, you know, referring to a book or something like that is probably a better idea than trying to conceptually understand it through a podcast because it's a complicated process and I think uh, even people that are, are in the business sometimes get confused about what's going on. Basically you're taking a, uh, a, a grape product and you're fermenting it and then, the, and then the next question is how are you fermenting it? Are you fermenting it in open top fermenters? Are, are you fermenting it again in the bottle by the introduction of a sugar and, and, and yeast product, or are you uh, and then disgorging it and then putting a dosage in it, which is what champagne is, meaning that I'm going to go through it all. The dosage, explain that. I guess I could slow down. I, um, with champagne, you, you ferment your juice, and then that fermented juice goes into a bottle with a what they call the uh, liqueur de exposition, which is a combination of yeast and sugar. It is usually put a, uh, in a bottle with a crown cap, sometimes though with a cork, but whatever you do it, it then sits in that bottle and the bottle, a second fermentation occurs in the bottle. You capture CO2 because the bottle is, is capped it's not like an open top fermenter where the CO2 has gone out in the first fermentation. As the bottle lays down and that, that second fermentation occurs, you start rack, you, you start riddling the, the bottle, which is taking it from a horizontal position and over time turning it a quarter of a turn a day and, and, and changing the angle so that from being horizontal, it ultimately ends up at about a oh, a 55-degree angle in, uh, in a riddling rack, and by then all the lease, all the deposit comes down into the neck of, of the champagne bottle. They then now freeze that neck, take that lease and it get and out of, you know, they take the cap off, the, the, the lease shoots out, they then put a dosage back in, which is the liqueur de tirage, which is, you know, the dosage. If it's a, it can be two grams per liter, five, nine, there, there are various amounts. Of sugar? Of, of sugar, right, grams per liter. Um, but if you can also do zero dosage, no sugar added, okay. 
possibly then just a little bit of the wine added again to top it up because you've lost through uh, the disgorgement. Uh, you know, you want the bottle you know, pretty, pretty high up, so you just put some more wine back in. So that's the traditional method champenoise. A lot of wine is made like that around the world. They just can't call it champagne. There are other methods. There's a bulk method where the same product, the second dairy fermentation, instead of being done in bottle, is done in a big tank. And, and again, the process of injecting the yeast and the sugar is done, and then there's a settlement of the lees, and then they take and and they then bottle it out of the tank uh, with with their dosage. That's called a cremant method, I believe. Uh, it tends to only be done for wines of uh, or sparkling wines of. Uh, they're not looking for as much elegance in the bead or the size you know, or control of the size of uh, the bubble. And in Pet Nat, the, the, the main difference is, is that the secondary, fer the secondary fermentation is being done, quote unquote, naturally. Okay, the, that when, when the original fermentation uh, is, is, is finished and the wine is bottled, uh, whatever else the winemaker decides to put in, whether you know uh, it's a native yeast, uh, whatever, uh, a, a sugar made with, uh, from wine or a sugar made from beets or whatever, the secondary fermentation occurs in, in, in the bottle and there's no disgorgement. So is there more variety in a pet nat since the second? second Not really. In fact, I mean, I would make the argument that sometimes there's more variety in champagne because the champagne method allows for a great deal more control. And therefore, if you're interested in site-specific expressions, like many of the new growers are in the southern part of Champagne, the Aube or the Cote de Bar, where you have Kimmeridgean soil, which is a, a, the same chalk that is in Chablis and Burgundy, as opposed to the Portlandian soil that's up in the, in the main area of Champagne and the Montan de Rams and areas like that, you can argue that there's more precision in, in being able to uh, disgorge the wine and not put any more sugar into it or put a little bit into it, you know? And, uh, and but you're looking for an expression of terroir. The pet gnats do that as well, but it's a wilder process. There's less control. Less consistency. Certainly less, con thank you, less consistency. I think that's fair to say. There's also a, uh, I don't know what to call it. Um, much of the wine that's made in that manner is flawed badly as, a, as opposed to flawed well. <laughs> All right. Great natural wine. Good funk and bad funk. Yeah, good. Yeah, and the good funk wines are wines that are individual. They 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 are natural. They 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 have. They're certainly organic. They could be biodynamic, but but whatever the process is, they're evocative. They they speak to you in some way, and that's you know those are great wines. And it, you know, but they're not great because they're organic or natural. They're great because the winemaker has discovered something about that point, that place, and you know, that moment in time and their interaction with it, and they've managed to bottle it. And it's hard to do. Uh, and, and so just like there's a lot of innocuous uh, sparkling wine because it kind of all starts tasting the same in some way because you know, same can be said about an awful lot of pet nat, where you know you're losing the the, the sense of place, uh, the, or even or the sense of excitement. It, it's a it's a thorny issue, uh, I think, for most people, unless the, unless you're an, uh, a proselytizer for something. I'm not. I I, I just want to drink good stuff. And what about prosecco? The way that's made. It's made very much like a a, a pet nat. Uh, it, it's a, uh, but again, it depends on who's making the Prosecco as to what it is that, uh, you know, you're asking about. Usually Proseccos have a dosage, 
that that is that it's pretty high than it, that's applied. But there are some uh, that use no dosage, uh, and but what you have is a wine that once it w once it's been put into bottle, that's it. It's like so in that sense, it's a pet nap. And the carbonation that occurs in a prosecco is that it comes from a yeast and 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 a sugar. And it could be a natural sugar that's present in the wine. It doesn't have to be an addition, right? A dosage. And are there ever any other proseccos made, let's say cheap ones or whatever, that have forced carbonation? Is that a thing? Oh yeah, yeah. Just like artificial CO two. Art artificial, uh, yes. But I mean, I think you're looking there at. Uh, I, I couldn't even begin to tell you what they are. I have, I'm clueless. My guess Stop is. Stop drinking that, those a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> or never well, I, you know, I, I started with Andre and, uh, you know, oh, cold yeah, yeah. Andre. And, uh, you know, to me, Matus was all I could afford. Lancers was out of my range. So, uh, yeah, there, there's plenty of stuff that's made in, in what would be called an industrialized manner. I, ha I have no, I don't care how they do it. <laughs> it, it tastes crappy, you know, it's not, if something tastes really good, you know, then I think it's useful to go and find out how they do it. But if it doesn't, you're wasting your time. And so at the end of the day, if you're curious about Prosecco and you try one and it's not to your liking, I, you know, maybe you should go out and try a few others or go talk to somebody that you know, sells, let's say, a, a range of Proseccos and ask them, you know, is this one a little drier? This, you know, unfortunately, all of these things are just names and, and people are marketing almost anything, you know, under those names in, in many, many ways. You need to find out what you like and then, and then figure out and then find out how it's made, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, like anything, a little bit of, re like any good enjoyment, a little bit of research is, is required. So back to champagne, you know, so how did champagne as a category and, and as a, both as a product and uh, how did it get to where it is now? One of the problems that uh, always plagued the, the wine industry, okay, was how to take a local product and export it or or not even yeah export it but exporting might mean moving it a hundred miles let alone a thousand or whatever um, and because the reality was that um, unless you go back to the Roman and Greek times when when people would put things like resin and and all sorts of weird stuff into into wines that were in amphora that were then trucked around the Mediterranean, or I should say shipped around the Mediterranean, um, those were all preservatives, okay? They, they, were, they were all covering up the flaws in the wine, the volatile acidities, the, the sour, you know, it, whatever it happened to be, but they also preserved it so that it didn't turn into vinegar. So when, when, when the idea of a fine wine started to take shape in Europe uh, in the 800, 900 AD area, uh, again, through largely the church and the monks who were always looking for something better to drink, the, the, the idea of how to transport a, that product without it turning into vinegar became of interest to merchants. The Dutch really solved the problem first with uh, the creation of what was called the Dutch match, which was burning a, a, a sulfur torch inside of a cask and uh, then filling it with wine. And that was one way to preserve it because you, the Dutch were the commercial trade. trade people around the world, right? And they would have empty, you know, whatever they were shipping when, when, when they unloaded it, wherever they were unloading it, they needed to load it up again, that ship, with something. And frequently, there was an alcoholic product that was available, but whenever they, whenever they would put it on board and bring it back, it would, be, it would be vinegar, be useless. So they figured out how to do that. Almost in parallel to that, the idea of fortifying wines came about, which largely was pushed by the again, the Dutch, but also the English and the Irish. Uh, again, these are seafaring nations that have, 
ships that are moving around and they're always looking for something to bring back home from wherever it is they're shipping their goods to. And so you, you had the development of uh, sherries and ports and things like this to allow wines to make the trip back. So are you saying that like, uh, and not to go too far off the tangent, but uh, to the, the English traders that were picking up wines in Spain and Portugal realized adding alcohol to them would make it to the trip back and that's how Sherry's and, and that's how they got created. There's a book that I highly recommend anybody this, I know this is about champagne, but champagne and sparkling wines are really about culture, commerce, history. Hugh Johnson wrote a book called The Story of Wine. There's two versions of it. The original one, which is out of print, uh, it's, it's a, an encyclopedic kind of book. And then really one of the best abridgments I've ever seen. And so it's got actually bigger photographs and, and, and reprints of, of wonderful old paintings and, and etchings and things. Again, the story of wine. All of this is in here. This book is like, if you, if you care at all about alcohol and the history of alcohol, this is the book you want to read because it, this is the history of man. And all the way from way back when until uh, up to the current era. So that's where a lot of my information comes from, or at least the beginnings of it. So who is the, does the creation or invention of champagne, does it point back to one person? Ah, yeah, yeah, I got off topic. No, that's all right. People like to think that it does, okay? And so, a, uh, you know, Dom Perignon is, is, is given that... Uh, we were just talking about uh, You know, given credit for that. Um, I think even the owners of Dom Perignon, LVMH, uh, and as well as the winemakers there, and uh, people in general will tell you it's a nice story. It's very likely that people were doing it before he was doing it, and that in many ways, like many monks, he managed to write everything down in a coherent manner. And what was being done in other areas within that particular area of, of, of France, already known as Champagne, is, is likely to be more the case, all right? You, but there has to be attribution to someone. That's usually the case. The person who right. first writes it down right. gets yeah. credit. Same thing with, with cocktails. Same thing, huh? Yeah, yeah. in the cocktail world. Yeah. Now, I mean, because there are also sparkling wine traditions in France that are much older. Lemieux, for instance, which is a, an area south of, of uh, Bordeaux, I believe, as well as south of, of the Champagne region. Uh, has a, lo a longer history of making sparkling wines that uh, re-ferment in the bottle. Their PR just wasn't as good. Maybe it was more than PR. Maybe there's something actually rather wonderful and unique about the terroir of Champagne. And I can only, you know, one can make the argument in many different manners. The way I like to make it is, or to say, make the claim that as an, as an area, Champagne is unique and makes consistently great wine in the hands of many different people with different motives. Look, there's always a one-off. There's somebody somewhere, the mad scientist in, you know, in uh, Bavaria or, or, or in uh, somewhere in the, 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 the foothills of the Andes that comes up with an amazing wine that is sparkling and you know, like, and you go, oh my God, I've never tasted anything like it. We're always looking for that. But we're talking now about a large area that, you know, with a long history that is producing wines of real distinction. And I think what you, all you need to do is do a blind tasting sometime. And you don't need to know anything about anything. Just get 10 friends together buy some sparkling wines, some Prosecco, you know, all sorts of different price points from $10 to a couple hundred, you know, the, uh, and then everybody, you know, same size glasses, organize it. One person, of course, is not going to be able to do the blind tasting because they're going to have to put it all together. And you, everybody tastes it and makes their own notes and you get some sort of a scoring system. 
don't make it too complicated. You know, you know, maybe five stars, four stars, three stars, that sort of thing. And make sure there's plenty of women. If it's an all guy thing, it's bullshit because uh, in general, women have a, a more sensitive palate than men. Uh, so you make sure it's a broad cross-section uh, of people. Uh, you can even have a couple of industry people or pros if you know them, but do that and you're going you're gonna to find out that more often than not, one, the champagnes that you include are going to end up in the upper, upper tier and probably the most expensive wines as well. And that's why champagne is what it is, right? There's like a discernible flavor palette that kind of separates it from the pack. I don't know that it's flavor. I'd say that it's a discernible character. It's a discernible uh, gravitas. Or it's a, it, you know, flavor is, uh, I find flavor to be sort of uh, what can misdirect you in life. It, it's sort of like, I always say, if you want to talk about flavor, then you need to be really good friends. Because the analogy I, I use is, you're you're in a uh, you're in a museum and you and your friend are looking at a painting, and you remark about my God uh, that aquamarine I've never seen anything like it and your friend goes what aquamarine? That's flavor. Subjective. It's it's not only subjective it's ephemeral and it's on the front of your palate, and it has nothing to do with the character. The character is, is what you live with, you know? And what you live with is your mid-palate and, 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 and the finish of the wine and uh, the science of, of taste is, is complicated a little bit, I think. And, and it's actually the refractory elements of taste that are most important. It's like w what comes back to you after you swallow, or if you're tasting after you spit, what you're left with. Uh, that's where you can find the core, the soul of anything you're drinking. That's how a lot of spirits are evaluated. Uh, also, some of the mm -hmm. finest teas, yeah, are evaluated the same way. Not so much, not only by what it tastes like, but minutes after the tea has is gone. Right. Uh, the sensation that's left in the mouth. That's left. And it's about texture. It's about what I like to call the architecture of a wine, okay? Which is that, uh, and, and if you start thinking about it that way, I mean, one of the things I was taught by, by somebody, a uh, gentleman in the business, his name is Paul Wasserman. Uh, his mother is known sometimes as the Queen of Burgundy. She, she really... Her company, Le Cervet, brings in just the most amazing burgundies uh, uh, that anybody has ever brought into the States as a, as a group. But Paul had, a, I think, a winemaker's approach and has a winemaker's approach to tasting and understanding a wine, and champagne is a wine. Do not be fooled by, by what the tip of your tongue tells you. Um, it's sort of like a pretty dress. So for the novice drinker or someone who wants to get more into drinking champagne or, you know, wines in general, in order for them to be better at evaluating uh, the quality and character of a wine or a champagne and get past that kind of just the initial first date, if you will, and get and go on multiple dates to be able to uh, get into the character, what, how do, what, do you have any suggestions? Uh, I do. Pretty much disregard everything I've just said. <laughs> Because there, there's a book called Wine Folly, and I, there's the Magnum Edition. And it's a book that I've known about for a long time, and I finally broke down and said, I'm curious. And whoever these people are, I have no idea. Uh, they've done the best job I've seen of anybody at any moment in time to bring you into understanding a little bit in a way, practical way about wine and what it is, and which includes champagne and sparkling wines and pet nats and f pairings and you know hot take. You know they won't talk to you about what I just said. All right, about how to ignore flavors and aromas. But that being said, it's a great book. It really is, and it's the magnum edition of Wine Folly. It's laid out 
in a really smart manner, and, and it's like a reference book. And, and, and the beginning of it is super because it just goes through all the things that you, know, you would be curious about. And then smell, faults, all that kind of thing. And then it goes grape by grape by grape by grape. And where it grows and everything else, it's a great book. So that's what I really, you know, that, that's where I'd start, okay? Because it's an overwhelming subject. And so if you're interested in sparkling wine and champagne, and I highly recommend champagne as opposed to the other sparkling wines because I believe that it is only in champagne that you can reach the pinnacle of what a sparkling wine is capable of. There are champagnes that belong in the pantheon of the greatest creations uh, in the history of, of vinosity, you know? I mean, they're just crazy things that when you taste them, you go, oh my God, uh, I, I want to have this experience over and over. And of course you can't because it's one bottle, right? And, and the same wine on a different day, you know, in a different bottle, is not gonna do it for you that way, right? So I love champagne because, it, uh, for me, it's the product of the industrial era. And when I was young, I was down on the industrial era. But now I think I've realized that it is the industrial the revolution and the post-industrial revolution and now everything that goes with transistors and jet engines and artificial intelligence and all of that this is uh, this is the this is the way to lift humanity out of the you know out of out of poverty and uh, so I think the champagne and sherry similar terroir similar chalk by the way but I think these wines that are the product of industrial production techno you know technologies i mean champagne is now a, you know you you go to a champagne producer and even small growers will have machines that are helping them to you know make uh, this product because it needs to be uh, what you know you, it, it's a repetitive process that you need to do to be able to disgorge the bottles put the dosage back in put the cork in, put the, you know, the cage on the cork, the whole, you know, uh, it used to be done mostly by women, okay? You know, they, they, their hands would become crimped up and because they were doing the same thing for eight, 10 hours a day, and they, they were arthritic by the time they were 40, okay? So don't think that grower champagne is anything about going back to that kind of bullshit. Right, we are way beyond it. But so, to me, champagne is representative of of the future. of Of the future, it was a, a product of the industrial revolution, and it's gorgeous and it's wonderful. And we should be celebrated for what it is, which is something that could only come about and be experienced by millions and millions of people because of machines. Now, you mentioned grower champagne. Yes. Um, Let's get into that and the distinction between grower champagnes, which uh, you see that word thrown around a lot now, versus, I guess, uh, some of the large, larger kind of house. The bigger houses or the 20 Grand Marks or you know, 20, what I think it's 20, which are the large, used to be only negociants, but now many of the larger houses actually own quite a lot of land as well. In fact, Rotorer, which is one of the larger houses, uh, uh, 70% of uh, their production is estate or owned land. Look, there's a social and a political aspect to this whole thing about grower champagne versus. So what Ron is grower Mark. champagne for? Grower people? champagne is, you know, it's a it's a it's a term that can't comes about because it's it's champagne that's made by people that own the land and make the wine. Uh, they're, they're sourcing the grapes from they're not else. They're, they're no they're RMs uh, and pardon me I can't pronounce it because I don't speak French but there's if you look on the back of a champagne bottle you'll see you'll see a, a, a nomenclature and if you see RM absolutely a grower champagne meaning that a hundred percent of the grapes are grown from land owned by the winemaker now okay 
I mean, the same can be said in Burgundy, right? Where, you know, somebody like uh, Fourier, who's super well-known, you know, uh, is a, you know, he has, he owns the land. And, but guess what? Most of these people also have a negotiant license. It's not that they use it, but Beresh, for instance, which is a grower champagne. I have a great little story for you about Beresh. That's a grower champagne, right? I mean, anybody that's you know, following this stuff. So Peter Leem, who's one of the top journalist writers about champagne and who has a beautiful, wonderful book about champagne. I have that. Uh, and The Essential Guide to the Wines, Producers, and Terroirs of the Iconic Region. Uh, the maps in here alone are worth the tariff. But anyway, Peter was on a book tour, and my friends and I, who go to Luke's for Sunday supper here for years, went to the dinner. It was a Sunday supper dinner, I think, where Peter was going to be there, and would uh, you could buy in, in his book, and, and, and he'd sign it and whatnot. So we all bought, brought cool champagnes, you know, to drink. And of course, he he got there and he was bleary eyed, and he was at, it was at the end of you know a month of nothing but glad handing people around the country, and he comes up to our table, and he's really not drinking, so you know it's the end of his tour, and somebody had brought an O2 Barash single vineyard of some sort. I can't remember exactly what it was, and Peter looked at it and he goes, "Oh, you know they didn't make that." <laughs> and I'm trying to remember. I I I, uh, I can't remember offhand. He knew exactly who had made that wine. Baresh has always had a negotiant licensing a license as well, and you need to be very you know. So, but on the front, if it says Baresh, are you going to look on the back to see if it's RM or not? Because if it isn't, then it's not a grower champagne. It's something that either they purchase the grapes or they even purchased the finished champagne. I understand. There's an article that just came out, actually, about the origin story of grower champagne, and it's, it's by David White. He's got a book out, but just look for David White and origin of grower champagne. It's a pretty good history of you know, what happened and how it happened. Except, again, it's not really the whole story. It's not the whole, you know, I mean... Uh, it's what you do with the grapes still that matters. And, 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 and yeah, and, and there is no such thing as grower champagne at the end of the day. It's just some name that has conveniently been appropriated by the people that need to tell you what to think. It's a marketing thing. Craft and, yeah. and you <laughs> know, <laughs> Right. But, it, you know, it's taken on a life of its own. I mean, there's Terry Teese, who, you know, is attributed in the popular press to, you know, bringing the grower champagnes into the United States. And it's true in some level, but it's completely false historically because Kermit Lynch was bringing in Paul Barra I think in the 70s, certainly in the 80s, Terry wasn't bringing in champagne until the 90s. And Paul Barra is a grower, you know, so it's just, it's silliness. It, we, human, we, need, we need labels, we need hierarchies, we need all this sort of stuff, and I don't like any of it. So for you, it's all about just tasting the thing that it is, and you don't have a preference between the, the big house brands and growers. No, you don't I absolutely have do not. I, I really don't. Now... Um, I'm just as likely to, you know, drink a bottle of <gasps> Krug as I am a bottle of Marie Cortin. And it all depends on access and, and circumstance. And, you know, like you can live life worried about what door you're going to open, or you can just open the fucking door. And, you know, so again, I come back to if you want to go down the rabbit hole about why something ex is the way it is, then do it based upon not peer pressure or, you know, what's hip or whatever else, but because you've experienced something that speaks to you. And if it speaks to you, it's your responsibility to go out and figure out why. Yeah, and the idea that, you know, I mean, some people that have been making something for decades, if not over a century, you know, whether it be in the world of wine or in the world of spirits, it's somehow because of, you know, 
those years of work, now they've become a big company that they're somehow automatically you know, inferior to a craft brand that just started. I know this is off of champagne, and I apologize. Uh, I don't mean to hijack the podcast, no. but there's very little truth being sold via marketing. Uh, my friend Alice Firing recently wrote an article for The World of Fine Wine. It's a magazine that comes out of the UK. It's super expensive. It's for geeks. It's beautiful. It's a great thing. But, you know, the point of her article essentially was that whatever the initial impulse was for uh, proselytizing about organic and biodynamic natural winemaking has likely been hijacked, and, and, and you need to stop looking for that as the benchmark and start doing your homework mm -hmm. and, and, and relying more upon what it is that you can suss out. Because right now, there are studies that are being done around the world about how much more money you can charge if you put the word biodynamic on a bottle of wine or champagne. And, in the, and, and the studies are indicating $5. Wow. <laughs> so... All of a sudden, people that are going to get big or are already big and have a way to standardize biodynamic winemaking are going to make crap biodynamic wines and get $5 more a bottle for them. So, you know, it, it's, like the, it's like nuclear energy, you know. I mean, it's a double-edged sword. When a discovery is made or something comes out, and what are you going to do with it? And that's the important thing here, right? I'm actually glad you brought that up because that's really the reason, that's really the impetus for why Rodney and I started this podcast was, you know, how very few, how there are very few sources of verifiable information for stuff in the world of spirits. Ah. Last night I was looking, I just wanted to Google, uh, I was trying to find out what is the base material for Suze. I know that it's a distilled product, but I want to know what type of distilled product is it? beet sugar, is it, is it, you know, grain distillate, what is it? I mean, I, I rarely go on, go past the first page of the Google search. I was on page three or four of that Google search, and I found nothing. Ah. Every article from cocktail blogs that are uh, respected and whatnot to the New York Times or whatever just says, oh, it's a, they just talk about flavor profile and, right. and, and that it's this distilled product. But nobody goes into the base of what it is, and it's such a, a fundamental thing. I mean, would you drink a, a wine not knowing like where it comes from or, or what that it's made from grape? Or yeah, or ignoring where it comes from. Or ignoring it. And that's really the that's really so rife in, in the world of, of alcohol. So I'm really glad you touched upon that point because that is the reason why we started this podcast. Well. One question about champagne to bring it yeah. back. Do vintages matter? Why and what makes something uh, a particularly good vintage? Vintages do matter, and again... And what is a vintage, actually? Let's take it, make it even simpler. A vintage is the harvest of a particular year. Uh, whether the harvest occur, you know, the harvest in Champagne is anywhere from late August into early October, depending on the year and the nature of, you know, the weather and, and all the rest of it. And whether a vintage is declared or not is up to the winemaker or to the house, or the grower, whoever you want to call them. So somebody may declare a vintage, and another person may not. But the nature of champagne, man, you know, like this is, the, you know, your questions are like, you know, like the open, you know, it's like, ah, how do, where do I go with this? Because one of the big things about champagne is that if you look at where Champagne is in the map, it's very far north. It's about as far north as you can grow, particularly Pinot Noir and Chardonnay grapes. There's seven grapes that are allowed in Champagne, but the two main ones, there's a third, Pinot Meunier, which is, you know, but it's, you're, you're almost at the limit. And particularly before, let's say, the on, onset of what is now a period of global warming, uh, so we're talking now in the late 1800s, you know, going forward, when uh, champagne was really being commercialized in a significant manner, you needed to protect against bad vintages. And so champagne would do that 
through two methods. One was dosage, all right, if you didn't have enough ripeness or, you know, balance in between your acid and, and your sugar. But the other one was blending, you know, not just plots, but also reserve wines, wines from a previous vintage, and there are different ways to do that. There are reserve wines that are from specific vintages. There are other people that create soleras where if they take a third of their reserve out, they put a third, the same amount back in from that vintage, but they started the solera and now it's 40 years they've been doing it, and the, there's still some of that original 1970 whatever it is that's still in that solera. Solera. There are all sorts, you know, again, all sorts of ways to do it. But at the, the end of the day, it's to be able to provide a pleasing flavor profile to your sparkling wine. Um, and that's what non-vintage champagne always is. It's, it's, it's rare, no, almost always is a blend of different vintages. Technically, it doesn't have to be. It can be a single vintage, just not labeled that way, because many of the growers that when they started inter, you know, making champagne for the first time, small growers, they didn't have the ability financially to hold on to a wine long enough to legally put the vintage on it. So they would release it after two years, and, and you need three years, uh, 36 months before you can Put the call it a vintage, but like uh, Ulysses Cologne, his all of his original releases were vintage wines. It's just he couldn't label them that way, and I'm, you know, for all I know, he's still not labeling them that way. I mean, Marie Cortin, all of her wines are vintage wines. They're all vintage wines. They're all plot specific, but she has like three and a half hectares or something like that. It's all in one vineyard, and so her wines are expressions within a, a single year of different plots. You won't necessarily use the same plot each year, so some wines are not, you know, it, you, can, you can geek out on this stuff. Hyper-specific. You know, hyper-specific. Or you can go, I like Ulysses Cologne. And when you see it, you buy it, and you either, that bottle was a new experience, from Ulysses Cologne and the terroir that he's expressing, the, the Champenois like to call it my elaboration. They're elaborating on a specific moment in time from a specific place, but that specific place can be multifaceted. You know, like Cru Grand Cuvée is frequently 15 or even 20 different vintage wines that are blended together on a base, meaning a, you know the bulk of it, maybe 60, 70% of it is a single vintage, but maybe only 30% is because it was a crappy year and they have to use more reserves, uh, you know. So in many ways, it's like, if, if you can think of a way to make a sparkling wine in champagne, as long as you follow a few basic rules, anything goes. You can have the name Champagne on it because you're, it's grown there. You know, from your perspective, what is there a kind of a special vintage or, or a recent vintage that's uh, that's special that we can yes. look out for? Yes, yes, but but it's a special vintage for those that want to exercise patience. Two thousand eight, um, brilliant year. Uh, almost all the vintage wines are made in a way that to lay them down, properly stored. There are some that are ready to rock and roll right out of the gate. Uh, Robert Monqui, for instance, has a really nice 2008 that is delicious now and, and you know, is, is not too expensive and uh, is, is a wonderful expression of the year. But yeah, eight has got everything going for it. Every time you drink an eight, doesn't matter who the producer is, it's like, Oh, you go, now yeah, that's a really good champagne. I wonder what year it is. And you go, oh, no wonder. And what is it about that year? What is it about the conditions? I wish I could tell you. And I think, that, I think any honest winemaker would say the same thing. Like any vintage, it, has a, it, it, has a, it had its challenges in terms of the worries that happen if you're a farmer and all of a sudden you have a, a, a particularly dry period when you're not supposed to have it. I am not a farmer. And the only way in which I could tell you 
what happened in terms of the weather patterns in 2008 would be to refer to a reference book because I don't retain it because it's not relevant to my understanding of the wine. And because I would argue that whatever that weather pattern was for 2008, it will never be repeated. And, and to look for it again is looking for a chimera. It's looking for the needle. It's, it's a waste of your time. You're, you're much better off knowing that that vintage is special. And if you want to compare it to another great vintage, understanding the general differences, not about, again, what created the vintage weather-wise, but what the result is for you as the drinker. I mean, if you want to go down the weather route, you got to talk to somebody else, not me. <laughs> One fun question we, sure. we always like to ask our guests, and in this case, um, you know, if champagne were embodied in a song, <laughs> what, uh, what song would it be? Uh, that's a good question. I, have to, I can only tell you that for some reason, Roy Orbison came into mind. I'm not sure about which Roy Orbison song it was, okay? Not Pretty Woman? No, nah, it wasn't Pretty Woman. You can take time to think about it and, t and let me know later. We can always plug it in. Yeah. yeah, it's not Pretty Woman. It's just like, I'd have to, I have to go back and look at some titles. Think but about I'll do it, that. and yeah, you, yeah. you can just email me, and we always do a little wrap-up anyways. Oh, okay. Uh, and Good. we can just we can add that in there. After the interview, Dan remembered the song that he wanted to reference, and it's In Dreams by Roy Orbison. And here's Dan's description of why that song inspires him when he thinks of champagne. Uh, champagne represents dreams coming true, the dream of a perfect romance. So even just the title, In Dreams, evokes much of what champagne really means to me. Then there's Orbison's arrangement. It's seven different movements, just like a mature, complex champagne that I might taste once and then dream about for years. The genius of the lyrics doesn't hurt either. They just end like a great bottle of champagne, but just just amazing actually you know that the magic of what you've just experienced will be different tomorrow and every time you think of it a candy-colored clown they call the sandman tiptoes to my room every night just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper go to sleep everything is all right i close my eyes 